We're going to be in uh, Daniel chapter 2. If you have a Bible and want to follow along there, or you can follow along. The text is printed there in your bulletin. We're not going to read that whole thing uh, up front, because then I wouldn't have any time left. <laughs> so, sometimes when I'm really feeling down or something, I read leadership books. And it's sort of like singing the blues when you're sad, you know? And uh, one of the things the leadership books say is that when you or the system you're in gets anxious, uh, it's helpful to get up on the balcony and try to step back and look and see what's really going on. Right? It's a way to get some distance to reflect and uh, try to figure out what's really going on, what's really the problem, uh, what do I need to be thinking about, what needs addressing, what needs ignoring. Getting up on the balcony, they call it. And uh, they sell a lot of books with things like that. I'm giving it to you for free. Right? Um, it's a skill, though, that is pretty helpful when you think about this topic we're on in the series we're doing about living as exiles. Uh, the way the Bible describes the Christian life is that we're scattered in the nations like refugees uh, by Jesus to do his bidding in the world. But we never feel really at home here. We always feel... Uh, like we don't quite fit. There's oddity. And even if you're from where you live now, uh, you realize that you don't fit and mesh like you think you should or feel like you ought to. And that that experience is normal. It's just what it means to live in exile. But there's a lot of anxiety that comes with it. And so sometimes the pressures of being in exile really press in on you. Like if you're getting a lot of opposition in your life because of your faith, or if you feel really estranged from people because uh, you feel like no one really understands why you think the way you do or care about the things you do, it really ratchets up the pressure. Um, Daniel, whose example we're using to think about exile, is really under serious pressure in the chapter we're going to look at today. Um, if you uh, are familiar with Daniel, if you've been here for the other weeks, uh, Daniel was a Jewish boy, you know, teenager, who'd been taken in, uh, into exile in Babylon as when Israel had been defeated. And so everything he knows and, and loves uh, is gone to him mostly forever. And now he lives, he's been educated by the Babylonians in divinity, I mean divination school. That's a pretty big difference. You know, so he's gone to Hogwarts and now he's got a job in the administration in Babylon as a diviner. A wise man, a magi, as we say around Christmas, because that's where the magi came from. And uh, so he's got this job, and that's weird enough every day. Like, I have a job doing divination when like, you're not supposed to do divination. <laughs> that's pretty clear in the Bible. But anyway, he's trying the best he can. Got this job, and, and then suddenly the king uh, gets stressed out, has a dream, and asks the wise men, the magi, the diviners, who were kind of his court advisors, he asked them to explain it to him. And not just to explain what the dream means, they have to tell him what the dream was, then tell him what it means. And they were like, that's not possible. <laughs> Nobody could do that. I mean, only God could, the gods could do that. That's how they said it, you know, and they don't dwell with us. And so it's impossible. And the king said, well, I'm going to kill you all if you don't tell me. Yeah, he was going to commit mass murder. Murder his whole court of advisors. 
if they couldn't do this impossible thing, tell them what the dream was and what it meant. And uh, Daniel goes and prays and asks God for his help, the God of Israel, the true and living God. And God intervenes, tells Daniel what the dream was and the interpretation, and then he's able to go and tell the king that answer. Um, And next week, we'll look a little more in depth at what the dream was all about, which is pretty crazy. But this week, just dealing with Daniel's situation he's in when he's been told, you have to do this impossible thing or you're going to die, which creates uh, some stress in the system, you might say, you know, a little noise. And what he does is he gets up on the balcony. He goes and prays and seeks God's help uh, in order to figure out what's going on and how to respond. And so in a crisis especially, but anytime really in exile, it becomes very important for us to learn how to get on the balcony with God. To step back from what's going on and try to figure it out in light of who he is. And what we really need to figure out is just that. Who is he? Because when we look at our circumstances, usually we just you know, panic and run in circles and things. When we get up on the balcony to look to say, okay, who is God? What do I know is true about him? Um, And in light of that, how do I evaluate what's going on in my life? So we're going to talk about how important it is to get up on the balcony to see who God is when you live in exile. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please help us um, both to have a sense of kind of where we are and what you called us to be, but also and especially who you are, uh, so that we might maybe see the world more through your eyes and uh, respond to it as people who really trust you. So come speak to us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read beginning at verse 17, and then we'll skip ahead a little bit after that. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, other Jewish men. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, as the song, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. And then skip down to verse 26. It says, The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. He goes on to describe them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. So, Nebuchadnezzar's a curious guy because he has several uh, really close encounters with God. You know, and 
at some point it seems like his life has really changed by God. Um, I would say not yet, though, because uh, trying to kind of figure out what's he actually going to learn from this experience that he's had. Um, one thing is he's going to learn that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God. And he kind of admits that at the end of the chapter. But it doesn't really seem to penetrate very far for him because what's going on with him, you know, you know what you dream about, right? Is the stuff that you're kind of anxious about or even thinking about during the day. That's what I dream about. The uh, this will interest you, I'm sure, because it's about golf. The uh, every golfer I know has a similar anxiety dream about golf, and that is that you're trying to tee off on the first hole out of a shed for some reason, a shed. And the shed is constructed so that you can either put the ball where you've got room to hit it out the door, but you can't swing because of the walls of the shed. Or you can set the ball up where you have room to swing, but then you can't hit it out the door of the shed. It's terrifying. And, uh, so, um, Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming about a statue. You know why? Because he was building one. A humongous statue of himself. <laughs> and um, so he has this wild dream about a statue. We'll talk about the details of it next week. But, you know, he's got this statue plan that's very narcissistic, you know, um, and self-aggrandizing. And he gets this interpretation of a dream, like a miracle interpretation from heaven about what's going on. And about how his kingdom isn't really going to last very long. And he hears this and admits that Yahweh is the true God. And he goes ahead and builds the statue after that. So you think, I don't know if he's learning much yet. Um, but like he's, he's certainly um, getting in proximity to biblical faith uh, in a way that he never had before. And probably never imagined that he would. So I don't really know what Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's getting out of this, but Daniel is also trying to sort things out in this situation, trying not to get killed and trying to protect, presumably, his friends that he works with. And he learns the same thing, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true and living God. You know, that becomes clear to him in this. But for Daniel, it's, it's sort of like this. It's like despite appearances where God seems to be mostly uh, ignored or disregarded and in a place where nobody thinks that this is a plausible thing to believe at all. I'm learning that the God of Israel really is in control. He still really is on the throne. And Daniel can see this on the balcony a little bit when it's very hard to see it down on ground level. And so he writes this great song that we read, um, which is very much like the song we just sang. You know, the last verse of This Is My Father's World is, This is my Father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He's still in control. Uh, this is my father's world. The battle is not done. And these are balcony thoughts, right? The battle's not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. God will finish fixing the world and he still rules it. And that's kind of what you see on the balcony, what Daniel saw too. And you have to see it from the balcony because it just doesn't feel true day to day. Uh, it feels like what causes things to be the way they are in the world is just natural cause and effect and guns and germs and steel and stuff like that, right? But on the balcony, you can step back and see a little easier 
that God really is in control of his world. So I want us to take a little time on the balcony today and then I encourage you to keep doing that on your own as well. Here's what Daniel sees on the balcony. First is that God is in control, not some king. God is in control, not some king. Nebuchadnezzar is like master of all these surveys, like humongous, I mean, huge kingdom, and no real rivals. Like, he's fine. He doesn't have to be insecure because there are no threats on the horizon for him. Uh, he has as much power and glory as he knows how to manage. He's building a big statue because he's even impressed with himself. Yeah. Um, but he's insecure. And he's anxious, and so he's dreaming. Because he knows, like anybody knows, that basically we're all frauds. And you know, even Nebuchadnezzar, who doesn't have any rivals, realizes I'm really not the great and powerful Oz. I'm just the man behind the curtain. You know? and so he's, he's nervous and he's dreaming about these things because uh, he's not in control. And so he's got this, he's got an idolatry problem, right? Like, I'll come back in a minute, but he, he doesn't really believe in Nebu and Aku. He believes in Nebuchadnezzar. Right? I mean, his faith is in himself. When he builds a statue, it's of him, not some god. You know, he, he worships himself, but like all idols, he can't deliver what he promises. He cannot be God for himself. He can't control his circumstances. He can't even understand his dreams, and he's terrified. And so he does what everybody does when their idols are threatened, and he gets violent. Right? If you threaten what's precious to me, I'll kill you if I can, if I can get away with it. I'll hurt you if I can't get away with it. I'll attack you somehow. If you threaten what's precious to me, that's what happens. He's trying to assert control with violence, but it doesn't really work. He can bully these court diviners, but they can't do what he's asking. They don't know. Right? And so he becomes murderous. He's going he's gonna to murder them all because they can't tell him a dream. It's a, it's a ridiculous thing to ask of someone else, and he knows it. But his idolatry and his pride and narcissism make him prone to conspiracy thinking, right? He thinks there's a conspiracy among the wise men, uh, and he accuses them of that and says, if you don't tell me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you all. It becomes irrational. This is it's what happens when we trust in the wrong things, whether ourselves or not. Quick aside about dreams. I don't understand dreams. Dreams happen in the Bible uh, occasionally. And um, sometimes God speaks through dreams in the Bible. I don't know if he really does that anymore. He can if he wants to, I guess. But I, you know, I, I, we're not really told that after Jesus is coming to us and you know, the completion of the Bible and things, that dreams are a big part of the Christian life. I don't even understand how people can remember their dreams. I can usually only remember like half at best of a dream, except that golf one. And, uh, but my, my general theological category for dreams is, huh, Check that out. You know, I don't know. Like Julie uh, introduced me to a number of Muslim converts, and every one of them that I've ever met or heard about had as part of their story of converting to Christianity a dream in which Jesus appeared to them. So I don't have a category for that. I think I'm for it. <laughs> you know, but uh, but dreams. I don't know about dreams. Don't base your decisions on dreams, basically, or expect that that's how really, things are really gonna fall out for you as you try to make decisions about your life. That would be my advice as well. But in this dream, what you find out is uh, that God is in control of history, not some king, right? Real power rests with God. 
Nebuchadnezzar learns this. It's, you know, verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. God's in control. Uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, not his power, not his ability to defend or attack. Um, God is the one who sets up kings. And he's hearing this and getting the message a little bit. But Daniel learns from this. Same lesson, but through different lenses, that God's in control, not some king. So he learns, like, how to think about political power in the world and how much to be afraid of it. Because God is in control and not some king. You know, at the end of his song, he says, To you, O God of my fathers, verse 23, I give thanks and praise. Um, And he's remembering, you know, the God of my fathers, Yahweh, the God of Israel... His promises are still true. He's still who he said he was. I'm in this weird situation where nobody believes this but me and my three friends. And yet, this is the truth about the world and about God. Uh, He's still on the throne. He's going to fix the world. That promise he made to Abraham hundreds of years ago now, at this point for Daniel, that he's going to bless and repair the whole world through Abraham's family, he's still going to do. Even though the temple's torn down now. Even though we live in Babylon now, he's still going to do this. It takes a lot longer than we expect him to to do things. Uh, But the promises are still true, and he sees this. And so he's not supposed to be super afraid or impressed by Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't have to be disrespectful to Nebuchadnezzar, but he doesn't have to be afraid of him either. And, uh, you know, this is kind of... It reminds me of what Jesus said to Pilate when when Jesus didn't answer Pilate, when he asked him where he was from, you know, remember what Pilate said? I am the great and terrible Pilate. You know, he, he said, I could kill you. You're not going to answer me? And Jesus says, you, you wouldn't have any authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. Which is a bold thing to say. And it didn't sound snarky at all, and wasn't, but it was like, you, you misunderstand where power comes from. And, uh, which is a pretty insightful thing to be able to say. No authority except what's given from above. And Nebuchadnezzar is starting to get this message. But Daniel learns not to be enamored of the power of the most powerful person in the world according to everybody around him. He doesn't have to be afraid of that person. It's not that unusual in the Bible to see people who are powerless, who are brought before kings to tell the truth to them. And you never see the example of somebody chickening out and becoming a sycophant when they speak for God to kings. It's like an amazingly good record in the Bible about how believers did when they speak to kings. We think of Moses before Pharaoh. You know, um, he told the truth to power when he spoke to him, but Moses didn't have any power. Nathan did this with. King David, Joseph did it with Pharaoh, um, Isaiah did it with Ahaz, Daniel does it with Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus does it with Pilate. Um, they know where real power is because they've been on the balcony. Right? God's in control, not some king. Um, it makes you think that if we got on the balcony more, that uh, we wouldn't be so easily co-optable by political movements. Right? Yeah, the Christian church is like low-hanging fruit if you want to manipulate people politically. Uh, we're the worst at it because we don't go on the balcony. Actually, you know, the, uh, the surveys that talk about Christian nationalism or other tribal effects on the Christian church all say that um, it's not just people who identify with a particular brand of Christianity 
that tend to identify with a political tribe. Uh, it's people that identify with a brand of Christianity but don't actually go to church. Like, if you actually go to church, you're a lot less co-optable into a political tribe, is what the surveys have said generally. And uh, that's very interesting to me. Right? You know, it's because when you come and you start singing about this is my father's world and, you know, he's the one who has real power and you pray, you know, that please give our leaders wisdom, uh, knowing that they have to answer to you in the next world. And those kind of things get in your head. <laughs> and you start thinking, oh, maybe God's in control and not some king. So uh, that's the first thing they learn. Second thing is God is the true God and not the gods of the nations which is a little more abrasive to say, um, God is the true God, not the gods of the nations. When you read the story, it's, first of all, it feels like a conflict between uh, Daniel and his friends and Nebuchadnezzar, but it's really not. And it's not so much even between Daniel and the other uh, wise men, magi, magicians. It's, it's a contest between Yahweh, Israel's God, and the gods of Babylon. And the contrasts are drawn out in the way that the story is described to say that um, these gods aren't real and aren't to be trusted, but Yahweh is real and is to be trusted. So, you know, like I say, Nebuchadnezzar, I don't think he much believed in the gods of Babylon anyway. He thought they were useful, um, like most politicians do with faith. You know, it's instrumental and useful to talk about it um, and to pander, but they think real power belongs in Washington or in Babylon. Yeah. Um, but everybody, the other magicians and Nebuchadnezzar, whether you believe in political power or these pagan gods, um, they all disregarded the God of Israel. They looked at the God of Israel like you would look at a stuffed uh, animal that you killed and put on your wall. Right? They defeated Israel and brought back like implements from the temple to put in their little treasury to say, ha ha, I killed you, I defeated you, my gods are better than your gods. And so they just, they didn't fear or respect, you know, if, if they thought about the God of Israel at all, it was in mocking terms. And so God is using these circumstances to sort of get their attention about this matter and to say, let's pay attention, what, what do you believe? And does it hold water or not? Um, and it's, a, it's kind of a hard question to ask because if you start saying, I want to question whether someone's deeply held, sincerely held religious belief is true or not, it just sounds super rude and arrogant um, to say that, well, my religious opinion is better than yours. It's like saying, I like chocolate and you like vanilla. Why would I feel superior, right? You know, and, but biblical faith is not... Uh, ever framed as just my opinion and like what do I happen to think about things it's framed as this is the truth about God revealed by him in history it's some of the truth about God we don't know all the truth about God but we know some things truly that he's revealed about himself and he said and these historical events matter they really happen God is really true to his promises your faith is well placed if it's not true don't believe it it's what the Bible says. And, you know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the resurrection. He says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, our faith is vain. It's futile. And we're of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, if it's not true, don't believe it. 
I don't care if it warms your little heart. You know, don't believe it if it's not true. And so Daniel's looking at the Babylonians and saying, well, Nebu, Aku, really? Are they real? I mean, let's, let's ask. Which is, from a biblical perspective, that's not a rude question. What's rude is to say, oh, I'm glad that you found your little private opinion about faith that helps you. And I'm saying, wait, wait a minute, you're describing, that's not what I have. <laughs> don't, don't put that on me. Don't, don't tolerate me. Tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> like, tell me what you think about what I say. To tolerate me is to be dismissive. It's to say, of course your faith's stupid and false, but I'm glad it helps you. I don't feel happy about that when someone treats me that way. So, I, like, I want to know if I'm, if I'm believing something that's false. And, and I feel like it's not rude to ask if you do it respectfully, other people say, let's, let's think about what you believe. Is it true or not? And so Daniel, you know, inevitably does this because he has to. But he winds up saying to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, look, no, in verse 27, no wise men or enchanters or magicians or astrologers, those uh, gods of Babylon can't do what you ask because they're not real. Actually, the, uh, the uh, magician said just about the same thing. In verse 11, he said, This thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And Daniel's like, You remember that temple we used to have? <laughs> Where God dwelt with us? Yeah, well, there's a God in heaven who can do this. And that's what he says to Nebuchadnezzar. The true God controls history, sets up kings. He even knows what you're dreaming. <laughs> like, which is... Bizarre. Nebuchadnezzar knows this is an impossible request and he actually gets it answered. So the true God is contrasting himself to the gods of the Babylonians. So Daniel prays, not sending positive thoughts to the universe, but asking the true and living God to intervene. You know when, when uh, people complain about uh, the thoughts and prayers response if something bad happens? And it's gotten to be where if someone says our thoughts and prayers are with you, we mean tough luck, I'm not going to do anything about it. <laughs> That's what it sounds like when you say thoughts and prayers, which is true if you're just sending positive energy out into the universe, if that's what prayer is. But if you're asking the God who created the world, who uh, actively rules the world to intervene in the world, then prayer is a very different thing. And that's what Daniel is doing when he prays here. Um, and most of his prayers is a song. You know, where he contrasts God has real power and might, like the Babylonian gods don't. God is in control of the world. The best those magicians can do is sometimes predict the world. Like, they're like a betting site that's, you know, right maybe 51% of the time or something. So, like, all they're doing is predicting. They don't have any control over what happens. Um, God gives wisdom. The diviners are looking at animal livers to try to see if they can uh, read some clue. So God is contrasting himself to the gods. He says, look, uh, uh, God's the real God, not the God of the nations. But Daniel's song is also a protest song. He's, he's in Babylon singing this song. And this is the kind of song they wouldn't let you play on the radio there, I feel sure. You know, um, There's a song, Psalm 137, about singing in Babylon. Uh, the Christians will sing it. They say, we're, we're by the rivers in Babylon, and our captors are asking us to sing the songs of Israel. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land so we hung up our lyres on the tree branches and wouldn't sing? We can't sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And Daniel says, 
I can. <laughs> but it's going to be the Lord's song like Negro spirituals were in the antebellum South. You know, it's going to be a song. And you may just think it's a nice little spiritual song, but it's a protest song, and you're going to find that out eventually. Uh, you ever hear the Blind Boys of Alabama's version of Welcome Table? Yeah, I'm going to sit at the Welcome Table one day. I'm going to sit at the Welcome Table one day talking about the Feast of the Lamb at the end of history. I'm going to feast on milk and honey one of these days. I'm going to feast on milk and honey one of these days. I'm going to tell God how you treat me one of these days. Who? <laughs> Song changed. <laughs> I'm going to tell God how you treat me one of these days. That's the kind of song Daniel's singing here. It's like, yeah, I'll sing for you. <laughs> um, this is the kind of song I can sing in Babylon. So we need protest songs still. We're going to live in exile. We need some blues songs. We need some defiant songs when we come to worship. I like the songs we get to sing that Sarah picks for us. Because uh, it gets us on the balcony. Gets us on the balcony. Satan, your kingdom must come down. We sing that. That's good to sing in exile, right? If you know anything about that psalm I mentioned, though, Psalm 137, you'll know it ends harsh. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Blessed be the one who takes their children and dashes them against the rocks what the psalm says. And what they're saying is somebody should do to them what they did to us. These Babylonians, these despicable people, someone should do to them what they did to us. Which is completely understandable. It's completely appropriate even to say to God, you know, please act in justice. But Daniel sings the Lord's song in a foreign land, but he leaves off that last part and foregoes vengeance in favor of mercy. Because when he gets the interpretation of the dream, he goes fast to tell Nebuchadnezzar. He goes fast before the magi, pagan, divining, despicable, dirty magi, superstitious. Before they get killed, he goes to rescue them. And he keeps Nebuchadnezzar from committing an abominable crime. Right? He does this out of mercy instead of acting out of vengeance. The other thing that's merciful he does is start in the middle of this chapter for like the next five chapters. This is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. You write it in Hebrew, who's going to read it? Hebrews, right? Believers, they need to hear this. But he writes it in Aramaic so somebody else can see it. Like his friends that he works with who are Magi. And the people who live there. And Nebuchadnezzar. Because he wants them to have hope in God. He wants the purpose of Israel to be a light to the nations. To try finally be fulfilled a little bit. So he writes it in Aramaic. Because people get up on the balcony and realize. All I have from God is mercy. I can't turn out in vengeance towards other people. Now I have to turn out in mercy towards them. And how much more do we know that as Christians? All we have from God is mercy, so we turn out in mercy to Him. Okay, I'll stop in a second. I have one of my favorite balcony moments. Was uh, I was in New York City uh, right before Christmas one year. It's hard for me to remember why, but um, I was. Walking around the city, you know, like you do, and it's just 
fantastic. It's beautiful, impressive. Uh, you think, man, if you know, here's the economic center of empire, uh, and it's easy to be impressed. But I went to a lessons and carol service at Fifth Avenue Preds, which is a really uh, elaborate church building and an elaborate church inside. And they were, uh, you know, putting on the whole show with a lessons and carol service with a magnificent choir. It was, it was amazing. Uh, they're singing the kingdom, like Handel's song, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And, and I walked out of the service back onto Fifth Avenue, and the city looked different. The city looked different. It did not look intimidating and powerful in the same way at all. The center of economic power uh, didn't look the same after you've been on the balcony looking at Jesus Christ. Uh, who is the king over kings and the lord over lords and is not intimidated by the economic might of the empire. And it was easier to look at the city then and say, let me never forget, uh, though the wrong seems all so strong, God's the ruler yet. And Jesus who died must be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And that's what you get on the balcony. Right? Let's pray.